Hello, welcome to The Resident Review. I'm Rose Trotta and I'm here with Ethan Song and we are Duke Plastic Surgery residents and we are here talking to Dr. Lynn Jeffers today um, in a new leadership segment of our podcast. We are very excited to talk to her. Ethan's going to tell us a little bit about her and then we'll, we'll kind of dive into it. Thanks for coming today, Dr. Jeffers. Thanks, Dr. Jeffers. Um, And for those who don't know Dr. Jeffers, um, she is a giant in the field of uh, plastic surgery and health policy advocacy. But to go through from uh, from day one, um, Dr. Jeffers is a board certified plastic and reconstructive surgeon who currently serves as a CMO of St. John's Regional Medical Center in St. John's Hospital Camarillo in Los Angeles, California. She grew up in Camarillo, California, and then completed an accelerated combined undergraduate a medical degree at the University of Michigan, where she then completed an integrated plastic surgery residency and subsequently her master's of business administration. In addition to her physical clinical practice and management responsibilities, she has also been very involved in health policy and advocacy at the state and national level, in which she has served in multiple national societies, notably as a chair on the Council on Medical Service in the American Medical Association, or the AMA, and the president of ASPS from 2019 to 2020 throughout the COVID pandemic. During her journey, she's won numerous awards and accolades with some notable achievements, including White House Presidential Scholar and the Micron's Microsurgical Instrument Award for Outstanding Clinical Research, to name a few. Welcome, Dr. Jeffers, to our podcast. Thanks for having me. Like like we said, you have a very, very star-studded CV and your accomplishments started way before college. Um, so I wanted to ask, could you tell us a little bit about your childhood and the driving factors that led to such a incredible CV and developing this achievement mindset early on? Usually when you say, tell me a little bit about your childhood, you're going to wonder, right? But I don't think, I mean, I think that I can credit my attitude and sort of this growth mindset to my parents. Um, We were immigrants and the idea being that you're, you've got this privilege to be in this country where anything's possible and they really encouraged me to learn all that I could. And I think that's where it comes from. It's not from wanting to achieve something in the sense of wanting a position or otherwise, it was just trying to learn and trying to be curious. And I think that's where it started. You know, I, I really have to credit my parents for that attitude and instilling that in me. Mm-hmm. It sounds like everything you saw was like an opportunity because, you know, I, I also as a, as a children of immigrants, I myself was thinking, you know, I'm trying to make the most of my parents' time here and their investments in me. So it sounds sort of similar. Yeah. And if you think about it, current, I mean, current literature talks about the growth mindset. And rather than talking to your kids about achieving something like winning something, it's more about encouraging that effort, encouraging the learning and the journey of it. And that's really a lot healthier. And that actually instills more internal locus of motivation as opposed to trying to achieve something that you may or may not have control of winning or not winning. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I think right now the conversations around growth mindset have really evolved and it's become very popular to talk about making sure that it's coming from an internal source um, rather than like external forces, although that can sort of guide your uh, your path. Um, what, What is your current understanding of like the growth mindset and how would you recommend developing that in residents here um, or residents across the country in plastic surgery? You know, uh, for me, 
my understanding of the growth mindset is this openness to failure and openness to take some risks. Um, and just really, for me, I tie that into curiosity, this idea that, you know, you're just inherently curious about how things work and being willing to learn about things that you think may or may not be at all relevant. I encourage that in my kids. I encourage that in, in the people that I mentor, because um, there are so many things in my life where things that you just don't think are would be relevant turn out to be just interesting topics or interesting additions to what you do. Yeah, wow. That's a, a very, very insightful. Um, I know there's that like growth mindset that really started the path towards achieving things and, and pursuing leadership roles as well. And you've been taking on leadership roles even throughout high school and into like undergraduate college, uh, medical school. Um, how did you just get started with all this, all this leadership roles? And was having leadership positions always something that you had aspired for? Or was it like a natural progression as stemming from like this growth mindset or curiosity that you had early on? Yeah, I cannot remember. I think my very first uh, memory of a leadership position was in fourth grade. I know I've been involved in student council since fourth grade and I was a class representative. I don't remember my journey to the fourth grade um, position, <laughs> but in sixth grade, um, I was school president. And I remember the first time I ran and I didn't win. And I thought, uh, you know, all right, well, this just isn't for me, you know, and I remember one of my, my sixth grade teacher coming to me because you ran for a semester, and then you ran again. And he said, you really should run for second semester. I said, oh, no, you know, that's just not for me. And he really meant he really encouraged me, which I really have to credit him to do. And then um, I did run and uh, won that time. And um, that was a lesson to me, you know, not to give up, of course. But during that time, I remember <laughs> there's a little company, startup company called Apple, and there was something in the paper and they said, we are giving out computers. So I pulled out my mechanical typewriter and I typed a letter that said, I'm the student council president of our school. I hear that you're giving out computers. We don't have any. Would you send us some? <laughs> and sent it. And they actually sent us two computers and that was the start of our computer lab. So, you know, to me, that was one of those ideas where, heck, if you don't ask and you don't try, you know, nothing happens. So just taking that little bit of a risk to see what you can do to make a difference. That's That was elementary school. Um, in high school, I was involved in student council, but I think what really made a difference, um, that did make a difference, of course, but also being involved in debate, which was, um, a ch which was really hard, first of all, because I was inherently, I know you won't believe it now, but inherently more of an introvert and more quiet. And it was, took a moment to um, really be able to do public speaking and think on your feet. Um, debate also teaches you critical thinking and breaking down a problem or breaking down an idea and thinking of all the different perspectives and how somebody might argue it differently and what makes something valid a valid argument and what makes something a strong argument or not. And then communicating what you've come up with and convincing someone who may or may not have any idea what you're talking about that you know your side makes sense so for me that was a lot of very um useful skills that I don't think people necessarily would equate to medicine or even equate to what I'm doing now but I really do think it made a huge difference and in fact because of that I really encouraged both of my kids to do some form of speech and debate even if it was something they were you know they weren't um necessarily going to excel at but actually 
actually, they turned out to excel in it. But at the time when I told them, I said, I don't care if you win. I just care that you learn about it and you acquire the skills. Yeah, that's a really good point. Did you, Um, I also happened to do speech and debate in high school. Were All right. Douglas? Which debate did you like, do? LD. Lincoln yes. Douglas. Okay. I, I did policy and like... then I did debate, but our policy is not the way that policy is currently. Mm -hmm. um, and LD was sort of a new form at that time. My um, kids, my son did LD and my daughter did public forum. Gotcha. Yeah, that's that's really neat. I, I feel like a lot of the friends that I had in high school who did LD ended up being like super hot shots because they were very well spoken and they were also very critical thinkers. I think one of the benefits of that is that you have to prepare positions for both sides so you have right. to break it down on both sides and I think being able to do that really helps set up a, like a good foundation for any sort of position that you're in I completely agree and we also have to think about well is that a valid is that a valid argument and also usually on a topic as you know you can have 20 arguments on either side then you've got to decide which ones are your strongest arguments and which ones go together and hang together and make sense together in one value proposition in LD um, the other thing that I think is really useful, which is a little bit of a, you know, outside of what we're talking about today, but um, what debate teaches you is that you can debate both sides very validly and still win, which tells you that most issues have two very valid points, which I think somehow is missing in our current um, society where people are entrenched in their black and white positions. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like it would still apply in certain medical contexts when you have, like, for example, a complex patient that certain teams want to do certain things, but then another side feels like it's not appropriate just yet. And then you have to sort of negotiate or at least see the other's perspective uh, and work together on creating some sort of agreement uh, for, for, you know, moving patient care forward. I agree. And I think with leadership, you know, one of the things about being a good leader is being open to other perspectives and really encouraging that dialogue. And so when you understand that there's this, these many viewpoints, you take it less personally, as some people do, where you're realizing that they're all valid arguments. How do we take all those pieces and create a solution or a way forward that, that makes sense and takes pieces of each of people's ideas um, so I think from that standpoint, that's a very valuable skill for any leader. Yeah, definitely being open-minded um, and also being willing to ask the tough questions, I think, right. too, especially as a leader. Um, and I think that's a good transition to my next question. When when you were in your early stages of your career and you were taking on all these different leadership positions, you were a resident, um, have you ever dealt with imposter syndrome? And uh, did you ever grow out of it? And if so, how? <laughs> Please help. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, no, I still deal with imposter syndrome. And what I found, you know, you sometimes think that you're the only one. And then as you do the reading and you read other people's interviews, you realize that people at the highest levels continually deal with imposter syndrome. I think that's part of it. And it's not, you know, in some ways it can be a negative, but on the other hand, it's not necessarily a negative. It's a reminder to yourself that you don't have all the answers and that it is um, okay that you should continue to self-evaluate and and have self uh, introspection to see if you're doing the best job that you can. So, I mean, to this day, I deal with imposter syndrome all the time in various situations. For me, the way to get around that is preparation, um, probably over preparation, but, you know, we do that all the time for our cases, right? We think that we know we have a 
plan, especially if you're trying to do some sort of reconstruction where you're filling a hole that you may not know what that hole is going to look like. You have a certain plan, but then you have two or three backup plans, right? So for me, preparation helps because then I know I've thought it all through and I've thought of all the potential nuances, kind of like we're talking about debate, thought of like the different arguments that people might have. And then the other part was just um, self-awareness really continually self-assessing what I think I do well and uh, what my weaknesses are. And also in that same self-awareness of um, this has come more later in my career, but why am I doing the things that I'm doing? And what is really my why? I mean, I think we start our career thinking we know what our why is, but that evolves with time. And um, as you understand what your why is, then you can um, figure out better things you should be focusing on, but also more of things that you should be working on for self-improvement or to be a better leader. And I think finally, I was actively looking for opportunities to develop my leadership skills, to develop my um, connecting with people, develop my um, skills. I mean, most people don't think of that as a skill. Sometimes people think of that as like, oh, it's something you're born with or not. I do think like everything, there's a little bit of uh, nature in there, but I think everyone could be a great leader if they wanted to be and put in the effort. It's just people are going to be different types of leaders. And more and later in my career, I also sought up a, a lot of coaching opportunities, but I would say coaching slash mentoring. It doesn't always have to be formal, although I found the formal coaching really helpful. That's a really interesting point about like the coaching and the mentoring. I think uh, right now, a lot of the very popular conversations about residency and I, a lot of uh, interviewees will ask, you know, what is our mentorship um, model like uh, for residency? Because it sounds like this is something that they're more and more interested in being able to be under the wing of uh, a very successful plastic surgeon or leader uh, in the field and, you know, want to be able to pick up those areas. So when you were thinking about like mentorship, what what are those key key roles of like a mentor and also in terms of like the opposite side of being a mentee, what are the the key things that mentees should be doing to make sure that they're getting the most out of their relationship with their mentor? Well, the first thing I'll say is that you can have multiple mentors, right? Sometimes people think I've got to find the one great mentor, but really mentors can be situational. You might have a mentor for your career. You might have a mentor then for maybe work-life balance, maybe a mentor specifically for your career tract, um, and then maybe mentor for social or other reasons. So you could have multiple mentors. It's sort of like it takes a village, and I think people forget that. And then to realize that you can look for mentoring in almost any situation. It doesn't have to be um, a specific program, although there are many programs out there, but it can be somebody you just happen to really strike it up with at a reception or at a luncheon, you know, and you're just talking or like when we, you know, when we talked recently at the, um, at when I visited Duke, you know, if you find someone that you click with, reach out to them and just say, hey, would you mind if I, you know, called you or emailed you sometime to talk about dot, dot, dot. And most likely almost everyone will say yes, because I, <laughs> you can tell them I'm, I like to be positive. I think that most people would help you as long as it doesn't hurt them or doesn't interfere with something that they themselves need to do. And I think most people inherently like to help other people. So I would say, number one, seek it out in the places you don't even think about. Then when you do come to a mentoring situation, come somewhat prepared, know what you want to get out of it. Um, because, well, number one, it'll make the best use of the time that you've got because everyone's time is precious. But number two, then that helps your mentor know what do you want to know? And, and if you prep them a little bit, like, I think I'd really like to talk 
about how to advance in the academic ladder or something like that, or what resources I can do for X, Y, and Z, then they can sort of do a little homework themselves and have that at their fingertips instead of, hold on, let me find out where I have that stashed. But I think in general, just keeping an open mind to that idea. As far as um, formal mentoring, I know that there are some medical schools that actually have a formal mentoring program. I was, in fact, one of my coaches actually works in one of the medical schools mentoring all the medical students, which I thought was amazing and a great idea. I think medical school, now that I've gone through MBA school, is very different from other how other people are trained and what is valued and leads people to be successful. I think in med school, at least when I went through it, you didn't have to be collaborative in order to be successful necessarily. You couldn't be a jerk or you couldn't, you know, whatever, but you could, it didn't have to be be collaborative and be successful. In MBA school, and I'm assuming in other forms of graduate school, you really have to be in order for your group uh, to be successful. They give you these tasks that a group has to do, and you can't have one person doing it all like some of our projects we've done in the past, right, in high school or college. You really, in order for it to succeed, everyone has to pull their weight, and that engender, and everyone gets the same grade of that group. So that really engenders a need to collaborate, learn how to work together, learn when to step in as a leader and when to step back. I think that's really valuable. And I don't know if the new medical, the medical school curriculums are different now, but definitely when we went through, that wasn't something we encouraged. Yeah, absolutely. Can I ask, what, can I ask, what other tenants from your uh, MBA do you think would be helpful to pull into medical education? And are there like places that we can insert those into residency training too? Um, you know, residency is a little bit different, right? Because in residency, you do kind of have to work together, right? Because you have a team and if you don't pull your weight, your peers are going to let you know. So that's a little bit different. However, residency is still a bit top down, right? So depending on who your chief resident is, they either do or don't want to hear from you, right? They either just want to tell you what you should do and that's it versus um, really encouraging people to work as a team and not necessarily be, be, be imbued with the title that gives you authority. Um, and I think the MBA school teaches you sort of how to have influence without necessarily having the title. And that's specifically important. Like right now, I have a title as CMO, but, you know, many of the things that I need to do and want to be, you know, help to change the, the people that I'm trying to influence how I don't report to me. So they don't have to listen to anything I say. And certainly most of the docs who are independent Unlike in an academic center, they're, I'm not the department chair. I can't give them discipline. You know, I can't fire them. I can't make them listen to me. So really learning how to inspire and convince people that, you know, we're going, heading toward this vision, you know, that you may or may not need to do yourself. Yeah, that's uh, very, very interesting. You know, you, you mentioned a lot about like leadership and also you ended up getting an MBA as well. Um, what were your, what was your thought process in going into getting an MBA, because that's been something that I think some of us have been pretty interested in. Um, and then some of our faculty also have um, dual degrees and some of our residents have dual degrees as well. From your standpoint, you know, what was the utility of getting an MBA? What led you to get it? And do you feel that um, it's something that's necessary to achieve like a higher role within the healthcare system? Um, it depends on what how you ask that question. So the question being, why are you getting your MBA? If it's purely for the knowledge, 
just like many other things now, you can get that from YouTube, from reading, from going to webinars, from do, listening to podcasts. So the knowledge itself is something you could get without it. But there's something different between knowledge and experience. So, you know, I got this question a lot because they... I was already a CMO when I went back to get my MBA and everyone kept asking me, why, <laughs> why are you getting your MBA when most people get their MBA in order that, for them to get the job that you already have? So why waste the time? And honestly, that was a really good question. I spent quite a bit of time talking to my husband and otherwise trying to figure out, would there be enough return on investment in the time that I was going to spend when I could be doing something else with that time, right? Because anything that you do at least for me right now, as I'm later in my career, time is the most important currency. And so if I'm going to use it on that, then I won't be able to do something else. Um, at the end of the day, and now in retrospect, I'd say that it was worth it. Um, but I will tell you that before I did, I asked quite a few people who I respected as leaders. And the ones who didn't have MBAs were telling me, no, nah, you don't really need an MBA for the reasons I just told you. And the ones who had an MBA told me, no, you definitely want to get it. So I thought, oh, of course, implicit bias, that's not going to help me very much. But And so take that with a grain of salt, because now I have my MBA. But I do think that in looking back, it teaches you a way of thinking so it's a framework and it all, and also just like anything else we learn, you can learn the basics and sort of the surface information, but then there's nuances, right? Just like what we do, there's nuances in when you would use a specific flap or, or another. And when, when you look at a flap, deciding if it's going to be, you know, you think it's going to survive or not. And some of those things you can't actually put on paper. It's not a black and white algorithm. Um, and there's also intricacies behind it that are wor not worth getting into unless you're in, in the weeds. So like, for example, counting, which nobody really wants to talk about, but there's nuances in there behind that. I mean, in general, it makes sense. Everything red is probably not that not good, and everything black and positive is probably good on the revenue side, right? It's not hard to figure that out, but there's nuances on what things count toward what, and depending on how you're, if you're in a system, depending on how your system is set up and how you are um, allocated expenses, you might decide to lease something instead of buying something or vice versa, for example, without getting too much in the weed. So there is a way, there are nuances you pick up. And there's also a way of thinking about breaking down ideas and creating strategies and business decision-making that you kind of practice during your MBA and you kind of learn about that people do. And you think, oh, that's just a different way of thinking about it. Even basic things like whether or not a company should do something that may not seem like its core mission, but trying to decide if it internally um, correlates and is aligned with your internal core values, for example. Um, then I also, my husband's orthopedic surgeon. So he was really asking me why I do this. And I said, you know, that's the other thing. I'm a CMO now. I sit in the boardroom and we talk about certain things. And like I said, red and, red and green numbers or black numbers, or, you know, you can figure that out. You can, you don't need the MBA to do that. However, he's an orthopedic surgeon. I said, so when the ED person calls you and says, so I've got this seven-year-old girl She's got her, her pinky fingers, middle bones broken. Can you come and see her? You already think the person's an idiot, right? Because the person's a doctor and doesn't even know the names of that bone, right? But like they're inherently correct. It is the pinky finger. It is the middle bone and it is broken. There's nothing wrong in anything that they've said, but you've already decided that they don't know what they're talking about. And I think similarly, just in anything else that we do, we need to learn that language. We need to learn that vocabulary so that we can speak uh, the same language and have that credibility. So I think that's, again, you don't have to do an MBA to do that, but it's certainly helpful. And then finally, 
I'd say that I um, purposely did an MBA that wasn't healthcare, and there's definitely reasons to do one or the other. And if anybody wants to talk about those, we can talk about them. But from my perspective, I wanted perspectives from under other industries. In general, healthcare is behind when it talks about business processes and ways to think about certain things. So I wanted perspectives from other industries and also connections from just these random people that are just amazing that were in my program. So for me, um, that made a huge difference. And then anecdotally to your final question about whether it makes a difference about moving up, I don't think it did before. Um, obviously, I got my CMO without it. Having said that, anecdotally, I've heard of some of the bigger healthcare systems looking for that MBA or an MPH or something equivalent for their leaders. So I don't know if that's going to change in the future. Gotcha. Yeah, all, all very good. Thank you for sharing all of that and very in uh you know, a lot of detail too. I had talked to a CMO at a previous uh, uh, health system and, and he said that a lot of the larger systems will require like a MBA to just to get a seat at the table, even though, like you said, you can learn everything off of YouTube these days, right? Okay. All the all the lingo and all that, but just to have the letters carries like some form of symbolic weight um, right. that people do want to see. So I that think is very you have interesting. To show either that MBA actual training, which helps, and in my case, they were very um, enamored with my work in health policy and organized medicine, and showing that you you have to show that ability to lead people and to get things done. I think. Yeah, absolutely, and I think this is actually a good transition into your your passions for uh, health policy and organized medicine. Um, you, you've been very involved with the AMA um, for quite some time. Um, how did all of that, you know, begin? And right now, you know, what do you think are like the current, you know, there's a lot of conversation about like quality-based care, value-based care, um, and, and you're sitting at a pretty high level and in, in helping influence some of that. Um, so could you tell us about that journey? And then now, like, you know, where the current space is and where you think things are going uh, with regards to these conversations? Well, my first foray into health policy was actually debate. <laughs> so in middle school, one of our um, topics, I think it was in eighth grade, was um, universal health care. Of course, I knew nothing about it other than my my dad was a physician. And um, I should say that, you know, as, as was the case in those days, my brother and I would have to work in the office. He was a solo private practitioner. So, you know, after school or on the weekends, you would go, you'd help to room patients, you'd help to file, whatever, right? So you got some exposure. Um, but I really hadn't thought about it from a system level. And that's what the debate topic was about. So we spent quite a bit of time in those days. Um, that's not the way it is now. You did an entire semester on one topic. Um, so it's really in depth and you really get much more nuanced in reading all the different uh, options out there, employer-based, single-payer, um, many other permutations. So that might, was my first foray. So I was really inter interested then. Um, I'm going to skip to probably med school just because the next bigger milestone was uh, the time when um, the Clinton healthcare plan was being debated. And there was this thought that healthcare was really, really going to change and it was going to be this major thing. And I was in med school and having had the experience I had from before, both empirically with my dad's office and then the policy, and then sort of looking around the room, realizing that most of most of my colleagues didn't know much about what this was and this potentially could be career changing for all of us. So um, as part of our AMA chapter, we organized a, healthcare, a national healthcare symposium 
we invited people from across the spectrum, you know, we invited people from the single payer side, Physicians for National Health Plan. We invited the Heritage Foundation, who was all about fee-for-service. We invited our legislator and AMA, who was sort of more in the middle, and had them debate it out. Because I, from my perspective, was just saying, I'm not trying to push anything. I just want to make sure that people are choosing positions based on knowledge and not just on the few things that they're reading as sound bites. Um, and then we did a letter writing campaign and, and all that. And that's actually a funny story because, all right, well, I will tell it to you. You can, yeah, you should tell it. I, I have heard it before on a, like a previous episode, I think a previous <laughs> podcast, but, um, yeah, you wrote a, you wrote a letter to a very specific special person. I did uh, so part of this forum. I thought, well, I'm going to write a letter, sort of like writing a letter to Apple, but, you know, older. I wrote a letter to Hillary Clinton and I just said, hey, we are putting together this National Health Symposium, um, Health Forum, and we're going to be talking about healthcare reform. And I know you're heading this effort and we would lo really love for you to come and talk to us about your thoughts or whatever you wanted to do. And honestly, I had no thoughts that she would ever come, to be quite honest, but I thought it can't hurt. So I sent it and then really didn't think much of it because this was like in the fall and our our uh, forum was going to be in the spring, probably around February or so. I got called into the dean's office <laughs> and um, luckily I knew him from being on a couple committees with him and he called me in it's like, Lynn, so did we got this letter from the White House? And it says that, you know, we're very sorry, but um, Hillary Clinton can't attend your event. And, you know, we're sending condolences, whatever, you know, that they say on those type of formal letters. And all of us sitting in the dean's office can't figure out who wrote this. And then it occurred to me that I might know who it was. So did you write, uh, did you invite Hillary Clinton to our campus? And I said, well, it's not exactly like that. We're putting on this forum, you know, as part of our chapter. And I, since it's about healthcare reform and she's doing that, I just thought I would reach out. I mean, I don't, didn't think she was going to come. It's like, okay, yeah, well, I figured it might've been you. And um, well, it's a good thing she's not coming because we would have had to do security and a bunch of stuff. But I laugh about it now because, you know, first of all, just the audacity of me just thinking, I'm just going to write a letter to Hillary Clinton and see if she comes. Um, but, you know, if you don't ask, you know, she might have come, right? Um, but but some learning points about also realizing that, you, you know, obviously there are many pieces to that puzzle that I would have had to bring in, you know, the dean and the school and security and all of that. So it's it's an interesting side, side story about that forum. That's an um, incredible story. <laughs> but anyway, I was in an employed position for year and I was reading the PSN I was literally just a few months out from um, finishing and there's a little blurb in PSN that basically said we are doing a leadership program if you're interested potentially in this program um, write this email and say you're interested so I wrote the email I thought oh that's interesting um, you know I'm always looking for opportunities for leadership you know development and so forth um, and so I um, wrote them and what I didn't know at the time was what was happening was in ASPS in the past, leadership, the way leadership worked was they would have these leadership retreats and you would get tapped on the shoulder by one of the people who've already made it and are big in our field and say, we think, you know, you're going to be a great leader. You should come to our retreat. And so people were shoulder tapped and were sent there. But um, Dr. Um, Wells, 
um, a past president, along with Dr. Rourke at the time, had this idea that, you know, we should make it more inclusive. And we, there are a lot of people that we don't know about who would be great leaders. So they created a leadership tomorrow program. And this, this was the very first year that they decided to put a blurb out and see who would answer. I didn't know any of this at the time. I found this out years later. So I'm glad I didn't know. But turns out I was the only one who actually replied. Everybody else at that meeting that year what had been shoulder tap like before. And I'm glad I didn't know because I probably would have been very intimidated that I was the only one. But I, I don't know, but they were probably like, who is this person who actually just randomly answered, we've got to take her, you know, but um, because of that, I was placed on two committees by Dr. Rod Rourke. And then suddenly I was, you know, involved in ASPS. I don't think I intended to be involved that early, but once you're on a committee, if you actually do work and show up, then they put you on five more committees. The next thing you know, you know, you're involved in that's where how that ended up. Gotcha. Yeah, very, um, it, it sounds like all of these took time, right? It, it, none of this happened overnight. It was a gradual no, progression no. of responsibilities, whether you liked it or not, um, and whether you wanted to do it or not, uh, but then just a lot of showing up too, it sounds like, you know, being available, being there when people needed you and to take on those responsibilities and, the, and to carry through. Would you agree? Absolutely. Definitely more than half of the battle is just showing up. Gotcha. Yeah, I definitely feel that, especially waking up early in the morning for residency. You know, you just got to show up. <laughs> got to show up. That's a different type of showing up, but definitely for sure. Yeah. Um, well, so it, it sounds like you've got but, many different paths going now, you know, where you're you're in medical advocacy. Uh, you've had this history of like policy, you know, your interest there. You're involved in like the the state and national level, level um, with with ASPS as well. Uh, and then you're, you know, you're also a plastic surgeon. So, you know, many different paths. How did they all converge to, to the point where now you're like a CMO and then you're also the ASPS president? Um, and, and how did you, you know, find yourself in that situation where you're like juggling all these different responsibilities? It's so interesting because sometimes people ask, you know, did you plan this? Was this your goal? And unequivocally, No. <laughs> I definitely did not. I don't think if you had asked me, I don't know, when I first started my practice, is that what I wanted to do? In fact, that would be no, right? But it's not in the sense that no, I didn't want to do it, but in the sense that it's not like it was part of some grand plan. And I think that's part of, and this is my approach. Some people do have very specific plans and that's fantastic. You have a goal and you're going for it. That's just not how my life worked. Mine was more about uh, being open to opportunities. And like you said, when you are doing something to show up, not only physically, which is over 50%, but also mentally and, and engagement wise, right? Trying to think of outside the box and saying, well, if I am going to do something, this came from my parents too, but if you're going to do something, do it well right? Otherwise, you have a limited time on this earth. And what are you going to do with that time? Um, and so my perspective has always been like, what am I doing this for? And if I'm do if I'm going to put my time and energy into it, then I want to leave it better than I started. Like I didn't, there are many times in my career where someone has asked me whether I wanted to be dot, dot, dot a title. And my next question is usually like, okay, well, but what are we going to do in that position? Like, what are we going to accomplish or what can, what, what are my, what, like, do you want me to do for you in this? And sometimes it's like, no, you just get a time enough to do much. That's not really what I'm interested in. I'm interested in making things better. So I've turned down a couple things for that reason. And in fact, 
for the CMO position, even I wasn't planning to be a CMO for sure. In fact, they asked me a few times in which I said no. Um, and ultimately the senior vice president of the region actually called me and said, so I think I was at, actually at an ASPS board meeting at the time, but he called me and, I, and he said, so I hear that you don't want to be CMO, <laughs> but we would really like you to be CMO. So can you help me understand why? So I gave him a list of things, including the fact that I wanted to make sure I was still clinically active. I wasn't ready to give that up. I love that part too much. Um, I was really involved in organized medicine and didn't want to give that up. That was a really important part of my, you know, of me and also a various number of other things. And then he said, well, we can work with that. I said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you can be half time. We won't micromanage your time because in whatever you do in your half time, whether that's your organized medicine or clinical or whatever. And so there were a number of things that he sort of worked through. And I, even then I was like, okay, well, let me get back to you. And then as I talked to other people, they said to me, Lynn, right, this was around the time of the Obama change and there was a lot of things happening in healthcare. And also I was about to start on the council medical service as well, but a lot of healthcare things were happening at the time. And somebody said to me, you know, we would much rather have you up there advocating for us than someone else. You get it. You have, you are, I can, you can do a lot more good for us as a physician as physicians and as well as, as a profession if you took this even though you know it may not be like you know something that people necessarily aspire to because one of my things is I still want to go to the doctor's lounge and still want people to want to sit with me for example <laughs> and um that really changed my mind I realized that I could have an impact if I took this as long as I continue to keep my credibility and my integrity so keeping my clinical practice allowed me the opportunity to say, if I ever got to a position where I felt like they were asking me to do something or advocate for something that I just couldn't fundamentally get behind, then I would still always be able to clinically practice. Now, luckily I've never had that happen, but having that clinical background really made a difference. So that's a long way of saying how I got into CMO. And I do think it does make a difference. One of the reasons that they were intrigued was because they knew about my organized medicine background, even though I didn't have an MBA and even though I hadn't worked necessarily in that position, but also because we had created an integrated breast center out of, you know, a program that didn't exist before and getting just dis disparate people to come together. They saw that, you know, we could get stuff done. So I think that's a combination of the two to, for why I am where I am now. Gotcha. Yeah. Wow. I have a question um, about that, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, so you talked a lot about kind of time being this, the most important resource at this point, the most limited resource in your life. Um, and a lot of the opportunities are really incredible. And you kind of, you know, took some really wonderful ones. Were there any that you took that you found out throughout the process were not really worth it? And, and if so, like, how did, how do you gracefully step back from roles that like, aren't exactly what you thought they would be? Um, I don't think there's any roles that I took that at that moment weren't worth it. But I think that if those roles were available to me now, they don't fit in, in they wouldn't have the time to do them now. Right. But they were important at the time, right? Um, so even things that you don't think are that important. So when my, you know, we're in California, 
California, we have budget cuts in our education. I'm sure that's true across all the states, but definitely here, especially during the time when my kids are going through it and they were cutting a lot of the gifted programs and the extra programs just because there just wasn't any money. And um, there was a program that they were going to get rid of. So some of the parents got together and decided to at least create some programming for them outside of school. And so what do you do when something like that happens? You find the two busiest people. So it turned out another physician mom and me just, you know, put together a website. She was the chair. Thank goodness I wasn't. And I was just helping, but we created a website and an entire program, you know, for the kids. Now, probably now I wouldn't have that time to do it per se, but again, that was a priority for me because it's for my kids and it's for the educational benefit of the community and so forth, if that makes sense. Right. Um, but from that, I learned a lot of really important skills, like how to create a website, how to do digital, you know, there were a bunch of things that I learned and I, you will laugh about this, but in the COVID pandemic, um, when I have to back up a little bit. So in the COVID pandemic, when the vaccines came out and I was in charge of both hospitals, we needed to roll it out. And um, they had told us that there was going to be some electronic system because if you recall, there were people when they first didn't have enough vaccines, they said you were going to cheer people. So only certain people could get the vaccine first. And then so you had to screen them and they couldn't just show up. It's not like opening up a clinic and whoever shows up shows up. So we had to figure out a way to register people and then confirm them on the same day and then run this clinic. <laughs> well, they were supposed to give us a system and two days before we were supposed to open the clinic, they came back and said, we're sorry, but the system we were creating has too many bugs. It doesn't work. We're sorry, figure it out. And so suddenly, um, you know, we're all looking at each other. And I said, well, I guess we're going to have to just do something electronically. And we're brainstorming at this ad hoc meeting. And I said, well, <laughs> when I was on PTA, <laughs> there's this thing called Sign Up Genius. And you could sign up to bring cupcakes or whatever. And maybe we can sort of use that with a con um, conglomeration with Google Forms and sort of put it together as like step one, step two. And like, oh, we have no idea what you're saying, but that sounds like a great idea. You're suddenly in charge of the vaccination clinic. But we did it. It was a pain in the rear. And I did. I got probably an hour and a half of sleep for almost a month while we rolled this out. But but at the same time, I just laughed because my PTA time, you know, helped me <laughs> do something in COVID. So you just never know when those opportunities arise. I love that. <laughs> so a lot of like front loading, figuring out your priorities at the time. And then you can use all of that. Like every experience is valuable in itself. So I mean, that was incredible thinking. Like use <laughs> all the PPA props. I tell my kids the same thing. Like you don't know what's important, what will be important in the future, right? And when you're young, you actually have the time to learn all these random things. Like when you're in residency, all you can do is take care of your patients and hopefully read for the case and maybe read for the boards, right? But, um, and then maybe relax if you get a moment. But when you're young, you have this opportunity. You haven't differentiated yet. So you can learn like whatever you want. And especially now with YouTube and all these things, it is so much more accessible than when you and I were kids, you know? Um, and so I encourage them like anything that sounds interesting to you, if there's a new experience and you want to do it, you know, like some weird seminar or something on campus, because they're both, you know, out of the house now, go, go for it, you know, because you just never know what might be relevant in the future. Yeah. It sounds like it goes back to your point too, of, of just being curious, right. Being yes. willing to learn and acquire all these different skills because you'll never know when they'll come back into play. Like right. the PTA, and now here you are organizing this hospital-wide, you know, COVID vaccination session. Um, so it, I think it's really nice to be 
agile in that sense too. Um, you had brought up a, a, a smaller point that I want to go back to about starting like an integrated breast center from scratch, essentially, right? There are no resources necessarily at the time and you seem to have this vision and you needed to get all these people together. What was that conversation like and how did you, you know, get all the stakeholders on board and how did you sell it to leadership? You know, what was that process in, in starting something from nothing? So, as you said in the beginning, I, you know, came from University of Michigan and we had the first comprehensive breast center in the country. So I had that background, knowing that how it could work. And when I started practice here locally, there were a core group of us that worked together. We had each other's cell phone numbers. You know, we would call and do all the collaboration you should do, like calling the oncologist or the general surgeon calling me and we would coordinate and do everything that we could. But what was frustrating to me was sometimes these patients didn't necessarily end up with these core people. They would end up with other people who then would show up to me after they had their mastectomy, got radiated, and now want to know what their options are. And you and I know that that changes your options. You no longer can get a tissue expander. There's certain things that you can't, you know, are less good of an option at that point. It was just frustrating to me um, as a plastic surgeon, as a woman, um, thinking that, gosh, at least have that conversation and, and let them know that information. So we started a symposium to educate the public about the team approach to breast cancer. And then I started talking to the people that I worked with the most saying, you know, we should create a breast center. But of course, this isn't like an academic center. This is a community program where we were all independent, but I knew that all these people were passionate about breast cancer care. Um, so that part was easier. At least I was starting with people who who were interested in doing it. So we looked and there's something called NAPBC, which is a national accreditation program for breast centers, where it allowed you to be a sort of center without walls. So then I approached, then I gathered some data after I decided, after we all decided we did want to do something, gathered some data about the number of new breast cancer diagnoses in the area, um, about um, where these patients were going, and then taking that data and taking out certain pieces that are not open to us, like certain, you know, Kaiser, anybody in a closed system, of course, wouldn't be open to our hospital, for example, then taking the remaining number and figuring out how many of those actually came to our hospitals versus our competing hospitals. Then I went to and asked for a meeting with the CEO. Luckily, I had a previous uh, relationship with her with a different committee, I think it was. And I presented her saying, you know, I really think that we should create a breast center not only is it good patient care, and if you were that patient, you would want this. And I explained what happened at Michigan. We want to be a sort of a one-stop shop and know that you could come here and you, you know, you'll have a team with you the entire way. Um, but also from a revenue bottom line type of standpoint, it makes sense. Every patient that ultimately ends up with a mastectomy at that time ends up with five surgeries, right? Because at that time you had a mastectomy, then you would have a tissue expander, let's say, and then the change out and then potentially, uh, and then a nipple reconstruction and maybe tattooing, right? So that's like five procedures for one person. So uh, and I showed her the numbers that we were not capturing our share of um, people that we could be capturing. So luckily she was really open to the idea and said, yes, go for it. It took us a good part or maybe more than a year to figure it out because there's a lot of rules and laws, especially when we're independent. We couldn't just use a room. We could, it could be set up multiple different ways, but all of them had to go up against legal. And so we had pivot quite a few times just to figure out something that worked. But ultimately 
you know, we got designated by NAPBC. We have a program now. We have a program that has a name. We can market it. And because we have a program, we were able to get a grant for I think $200,000 for our first nurse navigator. And the nice thing about that was after that, our nurse navigator then took the time to then educate and bring and get nurse nav get navigators for the competing hospitals actually, because the idea was to elevate cancer care in the whole county. So I don't know if that answers your question, but the thing was first figuring out all your stakeholders, getting people on the same page for a vision, figuring out how to um, why you are doing it and then sort of convincing people to do it and then really pivoting a lot of times and not giving up because there are a couple of times when I thought this is never going to happen. Well, congratulations. It, it happened and it sounds like it's really made a, a big difference in the, the care of patients like across the county. So incredibly impressive. And you brought up another good point too that I sort of picked up on um, that you, you spoke to someone that you were on a committee with at the time. So all these different things are still meshing together, coalescing together, right? The people that you know from perhaps some other committee you were on in the past or the skills that you have acquired in the past, all coming back together to help you in your position and maybe learning on the job too, because this probably, you might not have done this before, it sounds like. Um, so then you have to, you know, be very, very flexible with your time and choosing what's the best way to use my time uh, and having those difficult conversations and then maybe delegating to find having that nurse navigator help, you know, find more nurse navigators for, for the county. So a, a lot of very interesting uh, and also critical learning points there. That's a really good point. I, um, you know, in, in reflection, it's not something that I necessarily thought of in the beginning, but, you know, for me, personal relationships are really important. Um, and I think people have different influencing styles. For me, it's the connection with other people. And sort of the same way where you pick up knowledge from everywhere, like I, um, leadership for me is about that personal relationship and inspiring each other and supporting each other. And in every single scenario that you're in, um, it's not transactional, it's that relationship. And so when you cultivate that, that as much as you cultivate your skills and cultivate everything else, I think that's really what makes a difference ultimately when you get things done. Because as you, as we were talking about earlier about the MBA school, you learn that if you're going to get big stuff done, you can't do it by yourself. Um, if you can get it started, but you can't sustain and you certainly can't do big things by yourself. Definitely. And uh, when you were here uh, at Duke doing our uh, pickroll lecture, you had brought up this term of like agile leadership. Um, and it sounds like you have been in, I, at least in my definition, you know, demonstrating all of that. Um, what does that term mean to you? And how did that play a role in you know, all these roles that you've had, especially as also as ASPS president uh, from 2019 to 2020? You know, agile leadership is sort of the new buzzword right now in leadership. Um, but to me, when I think of it, um, it involves somebody and an organization. So it can apply to a leader, it can apply to an organization, right? Some An organization or person who's open to ideas for innovation, they're open to growth and learning. They take time to be inclusive and develop people. But at the same time, they have to define that vision, communicate it, and then provide the tools to inspire others to be an agent of change, right? So if you talk about COVID, for example, both at ASPS and as a CMO, we know that the people who were successful, the people who could um, be proactive 
proactive and adapt and and be nimble in, in that situation. Um, and so, for example, it with ASPS, um, we this was uncharted territory. In February of 2020, we I pulled a, together our executive council because we have a board meeting every March. And this new thing had just come along, you know, this, this some unusual pneumonia, people are dying from it, something about a um, cruise ship, right? And, and we're really not sure if it's going to be like SARS, where it's just going to die out with a little cluster of people or Ebola, or if it's going to be something major. And because of my connections from AMA and a number of other things, I've been talking to a bunch of people. And I was like, you know, this is much more serious than it's, you know, like potentially could be a lot more serious. So we got together and decided in February that we were going to cancel our March board meeting. And I will tell you that there were a number of people who thought we were crazy. We were overreacting to something that was not gonna be a big deal. And we got that even from other organizations. I will tell you that the day before the, um, what would have been our March board meeting was when the uh, WHO declared it a pandemic. So, you know, ultimately we were right. That doesn't mean we were right always, but ultimately it took courage to um, try to do what we thought was the right thing, despite it not being what was the generally held truth at the time. But then as soon as it really kind of hit, then I, you know, our staff at ASPIS, we should all be so thankful for them. I, I, they basically did anything and worked overtime to get these things done. Like I said, wait, we need a centralized place for information, because I knew that I was spending hours just Googling and trying to find information for anyone who remembers at that time, we didn't know a lot. So the best we could do is crowdsource. There's no journal article on COVID at the time, right? And everybody was trying different things. And the only way we were gonna figure it out was to crowdsource almost in real time. But then there was you know, a couple resources about shutting down your practice, resources about getting loans, resources about all these other things and what the current you know thinking is on X, Y, and Z. So. They, they helped me create a website and we put all these things on there. Then we just had to pivot. So things like, how do we shut ourselves down? So we'd have to create an ad hoc committee. We had so many ad hoc committees and we had so many ad hoc EC meetings, I can't even tell you. Um, and so we say, all right, well, what are we gonna say about shutting down an OR? What are we gonna say about PPE? What are we gonna say about X, Y, and Z? And then put out statements like that. Um, we then pivoted because uh, if you recall in New York at the time, there weren't enough ventilators. This is the first surge and there wasn't enough PPE. People were using bandanas, right? And reusing and all this stuff. So we actually helped to source um, a million masks to New York alone because we were trying to find, because what happened was one of our members reached out to me and said, look, <laughs> we didn't realize it was going to happen at the time, but I've got my own office space. Oh, I've got all this PPE and we're all shut down and we can't use it also have a ventilator in the OR. So if this can help save a life, I want to know how I can loan it, you know, to somebody. And so we said, hmm, let's create a clearinghouse. Maybe other members want to do this. So we created a clearinghouse and literally like even the hour before we sent it out, I'm still like, wait, wait, change this. I wanted to say this, you know, and then we put it out there. And within 72 hours, um, the White House caught wind of what we were doing and reached out to us and said, hey, can you help us source, you know, source things. And so we actually helped them source about a million masks for New York at the time, um, or six million, couple million anyway, masks. Um, and then also started to uh, figure out a logistics for getting the ventilators over there and, and even the legal and all that. And then luckily they just got over their surge and we didn't have to do that. Then on the flip side, once we started opening up all these people who now don't have any PPE, <laughs> were like, how do we get PPE? And there was no way to get PPE 
unless you wanted to buy a hundred thousand pieces at once and no private practice needs a hundred thousand pieces. So the EC and another ad hoc committee meeting um, decided that ASPS is going to front that money buy a hundred thousand pieces and hope that people are going to buy it from us but that would allow our members to reopen up and we really were the only ones or the first ones to do that even the ama and other state societies hadn't started to do that yet and i actually brought this to the ama and they ultimately did do it as well but um our little specialty society made a huge difference i had people who were in different specialties from the ama call me and ask will you buy me a box from your stash you know um, and I think that just goes to show how being a bit proactive and really having this attitude like we're going to do this, um, we're going to get things done, and we're just going to adapt and take risks. And um, that we were one of the few, I think, specialty societies that I know of that ended the COVID year in the black, which most societies were in trouble because we couldn't have a meeting. We couldn't do all the things that normally make money for a society. And a lot of members right, can't pay for their membership because we were shut down. But we were able to have a meeting, even though it was virtual, we were really innovative about that. And we did a lot of other things that a lot of societies didn't do. Wow, that's absolutely incredible. It sounds like you were able to really lean into these uncomfortable situations and, and think your way through it, but also utilizing all the resources in a very creative fashion uh, at hand, right? Yeah, and I can't take credit for it all, right? It's because of the team. It's because we have the right people in place, both from a staff and physician side to be like, yes, we're going to take, you know, we're going to take this on and, you know, we're going to, we're going to weather and we're going to figure it out, right? Um, it's it's that teamwork that makes a difference. And that's awesome. And it, it all started from a plastic surgeon, right? This, right. this whole level of, of change. Um, that's that's really, really remarkable. Um, and, and I know we're- And I actually think, I actually think as plastic surgeons, we are, we self-select for being great at a situation like this, right? We inherently are creative problem solvers. That's why we're plastic surgeons, right? The things that we do aren't always step one, step two, step three, like we are for many other extirpative surgeries. Um, and so we have to think creatively. We are problem solvers. We also inherently, because of our specialty have to be multidisciplinary. So we're used to collaborating between all the oncologists, the radonc, you know, the surgery, or if we're coming in to fix something that's a complication, just inherently we're used to working across the system. And then from a hospital leadership standpoint, we have the advantage because our specialty isn't confined just to the OR or just to the ED. We actually have outpatient, inpatient, we go to the ED, we're in the OR, we're in the clinics. So we actually get the chance to see the health system as a whole which um, not all specialties do. So I think in some ways we really are well positioned and self-select for leaders, um, not only for plastic surgery, but for medicine and actually outside medicine. You know, that's fantastic. Um, I know we are sort of coming up on our time and I want to be mindful of your time, but a lot of the, the key lessons that I've at least heard from our conversation, I know we could go so much more in depth with all these different stories that you have, but one of it is um, that I found interesting was always to reach out. You never know, you know, what, what, what can happen, right? You know, you got your, uh, your, your, um, your school staffed with computers. You almost got Hillary Clinton to speak um, at your symposium. Um, and then, you know, with uh, developing relationships, you know, through your committees and uh, through all the different teams that you've been a part of and leveraging those relationships too later down the road really helped out with, you know, building up um, and achieving your visions that you had in certain key points 
in your career too. Um, and also just learning on the job, being willing to be curious, to, to be flexible, um, and then also delegation. You know, what one person can't do it alone. You really need people uh, and a whole family um, of team members to, to work with you hand in hand and communicate all the different roles and responsibilities so that, you know, we can get to that final final point and achieve like what we what we need that about sums it up I might my daughter um who's now in college but when she was doing she was doing her college applications we were talking about this and she coined the idea of not only knowing your why but asking why not and I thought that was really good because it's a turn on what everyone talks about getting to your why but getting to your why is important but I think it's important to ask why not or at least be open to the why not that's what gives, that's what moves things. And um, change is really what makes things better. Absolutely. That sounds like a great title for the next like Barnes and Noble book, New York Times bestseller, authored by <laughs> Dr. Jeffers. And, and just to sort of round out everything, I know you have a lot of different interests too, in, um, in leadership development, strategic planning, innovation, you've given talks on like big data as well. Um, so I wanted to, you know, get your thoughts on, you know, what are the major trends going on right now within the healthcare space? What are the challenges and what are some of the opportunities uh, just for people who are curious about branching out of just plastic surgery and, and, and sort of achieving more than just the role as a physician, so to speak? Uh, so many places to go with that. So first, as far as um, you had asked earlier about, um, you know, where healthcare might be going right now, there there's been a lot of talk in healthcare about how we deliver healthcare. And of course, this has been a longstanding, for many decades, we've talked about this, but there are things in place now that may, you know, take us to value-based care or how we deliver. And then there's backlash against that about actually going the other way of just not taking insurance at all and doing direct patient care, like direct primary care, for example. I think we, we all need to be a part of that. And we, in order to be a part of that, we have to educate ourselves and know what the nuances are, know what, how the healthcare money flows and how we can understand that system so we can create the best care out there for our patients, but at the same time, preserve our profession as physicians. Um, and that's why I do really believe that we should take the time to educate and develop physician leaders. We do that, but to, to our point earlier, in a different way, to learn how to work within systems, to learn how to influence. And so I think there should be some, some connection there. As far as trends, as you know, Amazon just bought one medical. There are a lot of big mergers and consolidations happening with technology. And, and now the because of COVID, the increase in telehealth and remote patient monitoring, there's some major opportunities there or potential pitfalls um, as far as how people might try to come in and deliver healthcare. What we don't want is to take a hammer and apply it to everything. We know that yes, telehealth is useful, but it doesn't, it's not good for everything. And people are trying to apply it to everything. You know, you and I know we need a physical exam. Obviously for now, we have to be in the room to do an operation and to do some of the post-op care. And what we don't want is for everything to be virtual and that be okay and lower the standards of what we would do for, for delivering healthcare, delivering medicine. We also want to be careful of making sure that physicians are an integral part and leaders of this corporate healthcare. There is a um, incentive to make things be about the bottom line, 
And healthcare isn't about only the bottom line. Obviously, you have to be careful about the bottom line. Otherwise, we couldn't exist and actually deliver care. But at the end of the day, healthcare is a slightly different than getting your Starbucks or getting the next widget. It's about people's lives and their, their health. And so sometimes those have to be taken into account differently than other industries. But we their studies have shown that health systems that have physician leaders have 25% better quality measures without compromising on revenue. In fact, they have more beds per more patients per bed days um, than other systems. And that has been shown both in a study in 2011 and 2019. So it can be done, they're not mutually exclusive. And it makes sense that a subject matter expert like a physician who understands the system, treats patients, would understand those nuances behind the scenes. I mean, we do the same thing in sports, right? It makes sense as somebody who's played the sport professionally make, becomes a great coach. Why? in other industries where it makes sense, why would we not have that? It makes sense why those organizations seem to do better. And it's our job, I think, to make sure that when those opportunities exist, that we have great physician leaders available who can do the job well and show the worth of having physician clinical leaders at, at in your healthcare leadership. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's very inspiring too, especially as an as aspiring physician leader myself. Um, you know, what type of resources are there available for, for anyone who's interested in, in going down this path and being an advocate like you and sort of following in your footsteps? There are so many resources. That's why I stopped for a moment because there's just so many now. ASPS does have a website, of course, classicstripping.org. A lot of resources there. In fact, um, we just started a, um, a collaboration with MedTech Innovators, which we can talk about in a minute. There are leadership resources um, in various specialty uh, societies, including ASPS. We have the program that I was in that has now morphed into Pathways to Leadership, which is now Essentials of Leaders program. There is the AAPL, um, your state society, your and your um, county societies, both medical and plastic surgery that have leadership opportunities. ASPS has a resident council if you're a resident. Each um, which we created uh, during my tenure. Um, and then also ASPS has mentorship opportunities. So uh, ASPS has a program called Propel, which was actually created um, by younger members and residents. And the idea is to get people who are senior members, mid-career and residents so that you could get sort of a longitudinal mentorship um, going. And that has, um, they take cohorts every year. I would also put a shout out to our section. So we do have a women plastic surgery section. We have a young plastic surgery section, plastic surgeon section. We have different sections and interest groups as well. And then also looking at our ASPS message board and other means to get, you know, crowdsourcing ideas and best practices. But I would say if it's something that you're interested in, especially if it's leadership, there's so many places to get involved. It's just figuring out what it is you're interested in. And at the AMA, for example, there's a leadership development um, institute that is available for uh, senior medical students, I believe. But along the way, there's so many other positions as well that you can get involved as early as medical school. Great. I do That's want to awesome. take a moment just to talk about, because you asked earlier about some interesting opportunities if you're not necessarily going to clinical or you want to do something else in addition to your clinical. Of course, there's the hospital leadership, as we just talked about. There's leadership in our different societies, whether that's plastic surgery or your medical society. Um, and then some of you will be interested in research, of course, which is a more traditional um, academic type of endeavor, but it doesn't have to be academic. 
And then also there are people who are interested in the entrepreneurship and the innovation, creating the next cool medical device or creating the next what a digital something platform, right? Something entrepreneurial. And um, during my presidency, that was one of my, I guess, something that I had really wanted to focus on until COVID hit, um, but we still did it. We had a task force on um, technology innovation and disruption. And um, that quickly um, became three separate groups because three separate subgroups because it was so important. But the first subgroup worked on the technology within ASPS. The third group worked on disruption, which was like looking at the big picture, things like blockchain and nanotechnology and cybersecurity and machine learning, AI. And then the second group though talked about what we were talking about, which is people having building an infrastructure within ASPS. PS to support our members who are interested in commercialization and entrepreneurship. And ultimately that has evolved into a partnership with MedTech Innovator. It's the largest life science accelerator in the world. And it's a big competition with up to $500,000 of prizes um, available. And um, we have partnered with them. Um, we are the first plastic surgery dedicated accelerator. And uh, our first cohort was this year. And there is a curriculum that they put people through. If you get selected and our three will be in, our, in the finalists for their competition. Um, but as far as being a member of ASPS, you have access to that curriculum and that's available at medtechinnovator.org slash live, L-I-V-E. And that's the curriculum that they put their cohort through. So for people who are interested in that, there's just a wealth of um, opportunities there as well. That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for also initiating some of this too, that you can pass on. Um, we can definitely leave this in our in our description too uh, for people to check out as well. So um, I know this is sort of rounding out the hour. We w went a little bit over, but um, thank you so much for coming, Dr. Jeffers, for for your time and also um, the inspirational um, and also just clinical and uh, leadership pearls that you've shared with us uh, today. I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of other stuff to talk about, but um, you know we really do appreciate um, having you here as our inaugural leadership segment guest. Thanks for having me. And it's great that you're doing this and I look forward to future conversations. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.